You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 65 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 17th of December, 2018. During the Pipe Masters final. During the Pipe Masters final. So we have... pardon us if we are a bit distracted at times. <laughs> no, this is the this is the dream this is the dream <laughs> podcast scenario. We've got the dream podcast team, possibly for the last time. Mm, we'll get into we'll get that into later. That in We're sitting in the staff room at our new resorts recording for the first time. We've got the Pipe Masters final on the TV with thirteen minutes to go. We don't know who's gonna win. You know listeners, we have no idea and it's very exciting. We've got a massive pizzas that we're eating. Try not to get that on the mic. This is about as good as podcast life gets. <laughs> this is the dream. So, uh, yeah, my name is Harry Knight. With me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. Uh, Will Forster. Hello, everybody. And Asher King. Hello, listeners. So, Asher, you're leaving us. Yeah, I think this is uh, the last time for at least a little while that we'll all be recording in the same room. So, that is going to be a big change. Um, so, where are you off to? So I have taken a job with Birdwell Beach Bridges. We've you've probably heard me talking about them before in the podcast, but um, yeah, I'm a. Uh, yeah, you I'm, have been talking about them. Effect almost <laughs> as if you were fighting for a job. <laughs> no, with them. no, no. no. <laughs> Think about it. No, it was a, I, I used to. Um, I don't know. I used to ride for them surfing wise. I, I wonder if. I wonder if that still counts now that I'm actually on the payroll. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that rolls over. But yeah, I'm moving to to California. I'll be moving to San Clemente in about. Uh, Two weeks time. So, listeners, any uh, any advice for Asher as he moves into San Clemente? Send it his way. I'm sure he'll uh, be very thankful for Please it. Please send it over my way. I was going to save that plea for the end of the episode, but yeah, I'm, I'm moving to San Clemente. I know a little bit about the area, but um, not too much. So, I'd, I'd really, really appreciate any help. I saw you. I saw the advert on Facebook for you selling your tube rider board. And it just sort of said, I don't think I'll be needing this where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was so sad. Oh, yeah, there's a lot less barreling waves in, in that area. And there's definitely a bit more crowd. It's been nice because uh, Guionis has had a pretty good send-off wave-wise for me. Yeah, that's true. We're going to miss you, man. Yeah. It's I been, mean, how many years have you been living in Guionis now? So it's, it's been almost five years. It's been, it's been four and a half years since I, since I moved to Guionis. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many things that I'm going to miss. But yeah, the podcast is definitely one of them. And doing this has been a... A, a big part of my life and it's funny because when we started the podcast about four years ago I think it was pretty much just everyone in this room's moms that listened to it <laughs> like, it was like my mom would listen to it twice and then maybe like one listen from everybody else and and now pretty much everywhere I go in the world I get I get stopped by listeners I've, I've met listeners in South America and Indo um, on the east and west coast I've met listeners in France and yeah, it's it's just really cool how this little uh, side project is has unfolded. So thank you guys, uh, the listeners. I think that's just a good way to start the show. Um, I really appreciate this platform to uh, to nerd out on for the past couple of years. And uh, if you guys will still have me, hopefully I'll be uh, joining in remotely from time to time in the future. What would be your podcast highlight? Oh, that's out a of tough the one. sixty-five episodes. There's been so many. Talking to Kelly. Oh, so the Kelly interview, funny enough, didn't make the podcast. Oh, did it not? So I don't even think we've told this story. I'm not an avid listener, on, I'm sorry. On air. <laughs> <laughs> so um, right after we started the podcast, I was in France at, uh, at the, the Quicksilver Pro, and I kind of finagled my way into a media pass. 
and are basically just did it for the buffet and the better <laughs> the free beer and the better platform to uh to watch the event and um long story short i ended up just next to slater uh after he got put out of the event did you play it very cool or did you just fanboy him and totally blow the interview i couldn't have played it any less cool <laughs> it was so that's uncool. not like you because you're usually quite a cool cat under all circumstances well, i feel like that's the podcast has helped me a little bit with that when i was pretty green on the podcast uh i yeah the interview is uh, it was so bad with kelly Every time he said something, I was giggling like a like a schoolgirl's girl with Kelly. I love, hate when that happens. But uh, yeah, so that's why you guys um, never heard that interview. Maybe I might pull it out one time for like a. I remember like a when you uh, when you skipped into Surf Simply four years ago, and uh, butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, innocent and free, <laughs> and and unable to grow a beard. Well, it's still obviously this. Oh, I don't know. Kind of case. I was getting that. It's getting there. <laughs> But you know, it's been an amazing. It's been an amazing few years, and it's been uh, it's been like such a privilege getting to know you and getting to work with you, and uh, you know, and becoming a friend of yours. You yeah. know, hopefully for life. And and I hope you know that you've always got a home here. You know, you've you've, you've always got a family with Surf Simply, and, and I hope you'll I hope you'll be back to visit us pretty I, soon. I, We're going to miss you. I appreciate that very much, and yeah, I'll I'll be back down soon. February, I hope. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> I have to come back yeah. on Thursday. It sounds like Asher is being slightly choked up, but he's not. He's being distracted by watching <laughs> Gabriel Medina in a barrel. <laughs> Which oh, he just came out of. Oh yeah, my God, that was yeah. insane. Eight minutes 50 to go, listeners. We don't know who's going to win. So listeners, if you haven't noticed, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Julian Wilson fan. Medina's already won the world title, but it looks like he's about to take the Pipe Masters as well, bearing something really exciting happens. Medina just surfs the best, though. I mean... Yeah, he is... I'm not drawn to him personality-wise. He's a little Terminator-esque, but he just, he just surfs better than everyone else. Yeah, he does. What have you been up to, Will? One thing that I have been doing is trying to practice getting barreled because there's a lot of barrel talk in the office that I'm not always a part of. So I've been imitating Harrison and Asher as much as I can. Well, I think a, a certain little spot a short drive from here on Wednesday morning might be quite optimal. Yes, mm. I you believe wanna... so. I will. I've got... I've got plenty of time for that place nice yes <laughs> i hate it when other people talk like that you yeah. know when they don't say the name of the place it really <laughs> bugs me I, i'm sorry listeners that's great um yeah actually the, the the waves have been pretty good the last couple of weeks all the sound's been in very nice places that the swell and wind combinations have been it's it's been fun mm-hmm. i love the, i love the wet season here in nosara but when the dry season kicks in and the offshores kick in and you're sleeping mm-hmm. in bed and you just you hear the, like the the leaves rattling on the roof and you just know it's going to be like howling offshore in the morning when you get up. It's like the That's closest the feeling to Christmas morning. Is it going to be like, oh, it's going <laughs> yeah. to be good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going. Um, yeah, I took, uh, because we've had the, some pretty fun waves. I, when I came back from the UK a couple of months ago, I brought this uh, very beautiful wooden board that uh, the guys at Otter Surfboards had made. Rue, you're pulling a silly face. I'm Sorry. assuming something special is happening on Medina the TV behind Medina just did me. the most insane backflip and he didn't quite land it. Medina has won the world title and the Pipe Masters. Wow, that's pretty awesome. He is the best surfer. That's well deserved. Yeah, he's pretty <laughs> well deserved. Harry, you were talking about bringing back an otter surfboard. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. When I came back from Europe, I brought a very beautiful wooden board that was made by Otter Surfboards in Cornwall. 
uh, and they've very kindly lent us a, a demo board to try and get some photos of. It's been sitting <laughs> sitting on the wall in the staff room here. Um, we've all been a little scared to take it out, but but uh, myself and Harrison both both went and had a little play on it. It was very good fun in these waves. Ooh, it's I've a had little, a little sort sneaky of, surf on it. Yeah, you've had a little sneaky surf device, like a little uh, sort of seven-two single fin board. In it. Yeah. Does it float? Because it's the heaviest board I've ever picked up in my life. Yeah, interestingly, so it's it's very heavily glassed and it, but it surfs really nicely. It, it definitely has a lot of momentum, but it sort of seems to cut through soft sections and, and things like that and just keep soft sections, hard sections, people. People, yeah, <laughs> brick walls just keeps going. <laughs> um, and I also, while I was in the UK, I went down to see James and made myself a little hand plate, a little wooden hand plate, and I took that out the other day for the first time, and that was really good fun as well. It's gr- great body surfing waves the last couple of weeks. As we mentioned uh, in the last episode, we have finished the building of the new resort. We're now in here. So, Ru, I'm sure you might want to talk about that a little bit more. This has been your... Uh, your project but um ju- just before we do that listeners that uh, have listened to the last episode you may have noticed that uh it took me a little while to edit the last podcast we recorded it way way back in october and uh it then with asher announcing his leaving we had to go on a little bit of a, a hunt for for a new coach uh, and it, in with all of that it took me a little while to edit it so we're gonna have we're gonna do a little catch up on everything that happened twixt the two later on but uh, we've actually got one of our two new coaches sitting in the corner of the podcast studio right now do you want to give us a shout, Marlon? You! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so uh, Rue, talk us through. We, we, we sort of spoke a little bit about the, the resort in the last episode, but, but you've been the, the sort of real driving force through all this. So how, how does it feel now that we're in? Uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly exhausted and shattered, but very happy. <laughs> it's been like the most all-consuming, exhausting experience of my life. And I had no... Well, we talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect a lot on the show. I had no idea how much I didn't know until we got into this project. And I'm still learning every day. You know, I always thought of buildings before as being like these static things. You know, I'm fast realizing that they're these kind of like living, breathing organisms that are moving and constantly need love and maintenance. Um, but it, yeah, it's been amazing. The, the team who, who I worked with, Esfera Sustainability, Rodrigo Altman, Gensler, they, they were just all fantastic. And... Um, yeah, we, we nearly finished. We were supposed to be finished like seven weeks ahead of schedule. And I was feeling very smug about the whole thing. And then the whole of Costa Rica went on strike for a month because they had some changes in the tax law. And so the road between here and San Jose, the capital, was blocked from like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. just every day. And then everyone was trying to sneak like trucks of stuff through at night. But then, of course, there was loads of jams. And then all the stuff that was coming from up north, from Nicaragua and northern Guanacaste, there were these huge floods and like half of the roads you couldn't get past. So we went from being like, you know, seven or eight weeks ahead of schedule to being like three weeks behind schedule um, in that exact amount of time. <laughs> and then, you know, we had the opening week and everyone's parents came in and, uh, and that was really fantastic. But it was, uh, what was interesting for me is that, you know, usually I like to kind of structure my time and, and plan my weeks out quite carefully uh, and kind of prioritize things. And when you're finishing a building project, there's just constantly these curveballs coming at you. So you're sort of in the middle of one thing and something else comes up and something else comes up and you feel like you're constantly on the back foot. And like my nerves were just completely frazzled by the end of it. And uh, so I took, I took a few days off and uh, I went off to Barbados for a few days. I kind of, I was like saying, oh, maybe I'll just stick around and get stuff done. And, and you and Jesse and Danny were like, no, please go. Please just leave, please. <laughs> please take a trip. So I went, I went and hung out in Barbados, which was pretty fun. And um, it was just onshore and I got no waves at all. And um, you know, funny thing about Barbados, there's a lot of very, um, there's a lot of women 
that are quite predatorial sexually that could definitely <laughs> physically overpower me if they really put their mind to it. <laughs> and I haven't been in that situation before. That was kind of, that was interesting. Uh, but it's a really lovely place. Any, actually, any listeners going over to Barbados, if you want to surf on the, on the East Coast, on the Soup Bowl side of the island, where there's that famous wave that you see Kelly surfing in, in sipping jet streams, there's a lovely place to stay there called the Atlantis Hotel. And um, if you want to stay on the Caribbean side, there's a really nice place called the Little Good Harbor. And I drove quite extensively all around the island, and those two places are like significantly nicer than anywhere else I went. But I would suggest only going there if there's a good forecast. Definitely <laughs> not that reliable. But it was nice going away because then I came back, and it was the first time for six months I'd left Nosara since we went to Surf Ranch, I think. And I suddenly saw the whole resort just with a whole fresh pair of eyes, you know, yeah. and they'd done a bit more of the planting. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really, I, I don't think I've ever felt so proud of, of something. And, uh, and actually, <laughs> my, my mum is coming out to visit next week and she hasn't been here for like three years. And even though I'm like, I'm going to be 41 by the time she gets here, there's a little part of me that's just like, quite want to show my mum the building you know what I mean <laughs> just like I'm a kid who's like five and's made some clay in school or something but uh yeah I'm really looking forward to Christmas it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to your leaving party Asher we're having a party that's, I feel like that's really going to be the the christening of the new resort we're combining a Christmas party a resort warming party a Asher's party. leaving party a birthday party I think it's going to be pretty fun yeah I'm I think slight- we're going to test the resort yeah I'm slightly nervous how many people we've invited. It, yeah, it, me too. The, the invite, the Facebook invite page has gone a little wild. It's got a little out of control. Yeah, we'll just have to see. And there's some very strange combinations of people. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it's all going to work. But uh, So listeners, in preparation for Asher's party, I went to San Jose and I was just doing a lot of shopping for the party. Went into the light shop, thought we'll have a little bit of a dance, get a couple of like flashing colored lights. I went in, the guy selling the lights was like, hey, we got, we got a smoke machine over here. I was like, oh, really? Are they really expensive, I expect? And he goes, no, 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 they're, they're, they're not very expensive. And I was like, wow, well, how come everyone doesn't buy smoke machines? And he said, I have no idea. And I was like, well, I have one of those. <laughs> so now we've got a smoke machine and a strobe machine for Ash's party. And I told our friend Jack, and he was just like, oh, you're having like a 90s themed party. <laughs> and that was the moment I realized, yeah, that's true. I haven't seen a smoke machine <laughs> or a strobe in a, like a nightclub or a party for a while. So, yeah, we're going to have, I guess, a very 90s themed uh, party with a smoke machine going. And I think you should do like a big entrance, Asha. I really, I'm, I mean, since it's your birthday party as well, I will only do an entrance if you do an entrance. <laughs> and I have a feeling you don't really want to do I don't know. It also depends like what time this entrance is. There's a particular part of the playlist that I feel would lend itself very well to just me standing on the smoke machine manual override while you step out <laughs> onto the dance floor. <laughs> and can we just, you can't tell this story now without telling the story about how you tested it in your living room. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so fun. I, I didn't think it would produce quite as much smoke as it actually does produce. <laughs> I filled up the whole of our house, which has got like a high ceiling double house and the whole living area and kitchen and thing, like all filled up with smoke within about, I don't know, like 30 seconds. And I turned on the manual override button, which I thought was just the on button. And I, then I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. It's not as easy as you <laughs> thought. You, c- you couldn't even see two turns. I could, you couldn't see from like one end of the kitchen to the other. And then Marine plugged in the strobe light and uh then it was just we just had a good time it was fun <laughs> happy days yeah that is the way to cook dinner listeners 
couple of little bits in the news. We've obviously got a few contest results that we need to talk about, but we'll do that later on in the show. Um, there has been quite a noticeable increase in violent crime on the North Shore, apparently. A few new newspapers reporting this story that, like, beyond the kind of petty crime, like cars getting broken into and stuff like that, 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 that has sort of always been a trademark of the North Shore for the last 20 years or so. There's been uh, a lot of talk of home invasions and maybe slightly more aggressive robberies taking place. I was reading this article and, and maybe this is me being psychologically scarred by all of the uh, Trump news over the last two years. But all the way I was reading down it, I was like, oh, my God, please don't make this a thing about immigrants and outsiders. <laughs> and then when Liam McNamara didn't, I was I was so happy because Liam McNamara is the guy who was sort of heading the whole thing up. And uh, for listeners who don't know, he's a famous big wave surfer, brother of Garrett McNamara. And he has a little surf shop where he does rentals at Sharks Cove, kind of right in the middle of the North Shore, halfway between Pipeline and and Waimea Bay. Yeah, I was, I was just really pleased. I thought the, the, he, he said a quote at the end, actually, that I quite liked. He said, this is not about violence and about approaching criminals. Uh, it's more about being proactive in any way you can so as not to be vulnerable and to be a target. And, it, and I just thought that was a, a distinct departure from a lot of the rhetoric that one might have traditionally heard out of the North Shore, which perhaps has a bit of a kind of a macho vibe about it. And... Um, yeah. Anyway, I thought I thought the way that he was approaching the whole thing was was kind of uh, using preventatives rather than vigilante tactics. I thought was really really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And, and yeah, I like he didn't get down the immigrant native thing. Little stat for listeners: just feel like in this political climate, this needs to be said categorically. Um, if you are native born, this is true of the US. I don't, I don't have any stats for other countries. If you're native born to the US, you're twice as likely to be a criminal as if you're an illegal immigrant, and you're eight times as likely to be a criminal as if you are a legal immigrant. So if you want to move somewhere in the US where crime is statistically going to be as low as possible, you want to surround yourself with illegal and legal immigrants. There's going to be far lower crime rates than with native-born people. So just a fact for oh, everyone. Yeah. No opinion there, <laughs> just data. Some data for you to chew on. So don't build a wall because your country will be safer. <laughs> Actually, that statistically makes perfect sense. There we go. There we go. Save five billion lower crime rates. Yeah. Yeah, and he, so he was talking, actually, because it almost sounded like the interviewer, who was it, Beach Grit or Stab? I can't remember who was... It was Stab, uh, writer Rory Parker, who used to be one of the lead guys at Beach Grit. And it almost sounded like one of the questions was like, I think he said, where do you think this problem's coming from? It's like he was almost trying to lead him. Mm, and, that's and, not Rory's writing style at all. Uh, <laughs> right. And, you know, he actually pushed back and he goes, yeah, I'm sure some of this might be coming in from the outside, but most of this is caused by a crystal meth problem that we have here on the North Shore and people have guns and they are on drugs and that's where most of this is coming from, which I thought was, it was refreshingly an unpoliticized way to talk about the issue. And also it kind of reminded me of something else actually just, you know, on the subject of politics because obviously the whole gun debate's been a really big thing. And I heard someone say on, on a podcast I listen to sometimes uh, from these two guys in the tech industry and they were talking about firearms and I'm sure we've all heard the whole firearm debate to death, but one of them just said something that I hadn't heard before that was kind of a bit of a firmware upgrade for me on the subject. He just goes, um, it shouldn't be about the mass shootings because, you know, most people who die from firearms are, is actually suicide and people shouldn't have guns because everybody gets sad sometimes. And I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Everybody does get sad sometimes. That's why you shouldn't have guns lying around. The show Adam Ruins Everything just did a whole thing on guns and 
I'll gun have to control check that one out. and all that sort of stuff. I like he does good podcast. He did one on marriage that was brilliant. Mm. Well, he, th- so this was just the TV show part of it, but it was really interesting because he he it wasn't it wasn't like a, a definitely pro gun or definitely anti gun. It was just like actually both of you both sides of the argument are full of bullshit. Yeah, and actually, if you if you dive into the arguments, like it's way more complicated. Yeah, well, are you saying that that, that debate in America has become politicised <laughs> rather than fact based? No, Harry, come on. Well, on that note, uh, we've also got uh, Surfrider have announced that they are going to sue the Trump administration over uh, fracking rights in in certain sites. So, do you, do you guys you guys understand how this works? What it is exactly they're doing with these seismic guns? The fracking. Yeah. I don't think so, do you? So, so they, they go out in the ocean and they're, they're basically testing for places where they think that there might be reserves of, of oil or gas underneath. And they're, they're pumping, um, they're, they're basically air guns underwater, so they're pumping like sonic vibrations down through the water, like really loud bangs, and then they measure how those bangs bounce off the bottom of the ocean, and that way they can tell what's underneath the ocean, right? Sort of like a massive Sonicare toothbrush. Yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, but so they're they're sending out these loud, loud baths of com- of compressed air, like every ten seconds for sometimes days or weeks at a time. Now, if you just stop and think about how annoying it is for you as a as a person having music thudding from next door for an hour or two, imagine that's just going on for like days or weeks. And now imagine that instead of using your eyes to see stuff, you also use sonic location to figure out where you're going and what you're going to eat and you know it, it, it starts to you, you start to really realize how horrible that must be yeah um it's interesting that you know the, the the reason that they've kind of built this case to try and stop this is because of you know, the reasons i just explained how much it impacts the fish and they're particularly concerned about the um, north atlantic right whale which is this like big beautiful well there's only 400 of them they think left in the world there's only a hundred of them that are females that are of calf bearing age i don't know how they work that out and last year in the calfing season there was zero calves recorded at all so this is like a species heavily in decline and, and they think that this is impacting this species specifically but but the secondary reason why the surf rider foundation and, and other people are, are going after this piece of legislation is because they also want to stop the uh, subsequent drilling that's going to happen, yeah. you know, which is obviously going to release a lot of carbon into the air. So anyway, I think it's really good that they're doing this. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's actually bananas, just to go off on another slight like, controversial political topic. But um, I think it's worth bearing in mind that if, if you prioritize the US economy over fighting climate change, like, and I don't agree with that position, but it is a position you can take. Someone could argue that. Uh, and if you take that position, then it still makes sense to fight climate change, even if you don't care about the planet at all and all you care about is the US economy. Because when you think about the, the costs of healthcare and infrastructure damage caused by rising sea levels and the movement of people and the immigration into the US from other countries, which are going to be the first to hit by climate change, the, the, the immigration into the US and the effects on the US eco- economy are, are, are huge. So even if you don't give two shits about the planet, just from a financial point of view, it makes sense to try to fight climate change. So, and I, I think that's just something that doesn't get said enough. Okay, I won't talk about immigration, climate change, <laughs> or guns anymore, listeners. Back to surfing. But you are going to talk about feminism later on. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, well, 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 well
<laughs> Old lefty Rue, give him a microphone <laughs> and off he goes. Give him a microphone and three cups of coffee. Um, so lastly in the news, uh, slightly more positively, I suppose, um, we have the Surfer Pole Awards, uh, which always take place just before the pipeline contest. So we, uh, we've seen the results of those. And once again, it shows how completely disconnected they seem to be from anything that's happening in the real world. Yeah, I feel like the surfer pole is becoming rapidly less relevant because I, I only, before we were prepping for this segment, I hadn't even looked at the results. Well, they used to, be, they used to have the, the, the prestige of the Oscars for surfing. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like there's been a, with more and more media outlets for surf, there's so many people out there producing surf media, all kinds of media. It almost have this effect of like inflation on any content. Mm-hmm. Like no one content is has got the same amount of prestige as it used to. I think that's true even of the Oscars. You know, didn't they have their lowest lowest viewing figures of the Oscars ever this year? I'm not up to date on Oscar figures, but I would. <laughs> my hypothesis is that you're correct on the, the subject. <laughs> it's it's possibly true. I just I feel like, and maybe this is true with the Oscars as well. But it, it you look at the list of particularly the, the the people that are winning awards, and it just doesn't seem to be very connected with. I don't know, influence or clout or, or, or the amount of screen time that somebody's producing. What, what do you think it is? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, but particularly the women seem very disjointed. But, but you know, the men's surf pole, John John Florence has won. I mean, he hasn't really surfed this year. He's been injured for over half of the year. So he's, he's not put anything out. He did win performance of the year with Space, didn't he? Yeah, but so when did Spaced come out? Spaced is the best surf movie of the year. I'm not denying that it was a very good movie, but it was a it was a put together from clips taken last year, and it was released. I, I, I'm not quite sure when it came out, but it was released, you know, after he'd injured himself and had time to sit down and put that together. So I think much more out of left field than John John is Jack Freestone in yeah, second place. John Jack Freestone in second place. I mean he. He's not the most popular surfer at all by any metric. If you even looked at like Instagram followers, he would get dwarfed by Medina or probably all of the top five Brazilians. So I, I wonder, I just, I, I don't know how he ended up in second or Alana in first. Well, this the is it. Alana Blanchard and Bethany Hamilton, both in first place in first and then second for the women. And, and again, they're just, I wonder, uh, my theory is that, like subscriptions to all magazines have been diving, right? And I wonder if that's true for Surfer Magazine as well. And it would make sense that the votes on the Surfer Poll have also been diving. And I wonder if, you know, I don't know if Surfer Poll published how many actual votes come in, but I bet it's like... Ten. (laughs) Right. I bet it's just basically the guys in the office who are like, oh, I've got no votes again this this year, guys. Uh, Who who are we going to... Alana's sitting... Alana, who are you going to vote for? Oh, I'm going to vote for me. (laughs) Who are they expecting to vote? Is this a... The people, or is well, it industry the, people? It's meant to be the readers. Uh, and I, I think going back, it used to be like very in line with, with who was putting the best movies out, who was doing best on the world tour. Like there was a, there was a very clean alignment with that because they were the people that had the most prestige and the most viewers and, and all the rest of it. And I don't know. I just, I just feel like there is, there is so little connection with with what I see and hear. I wonder if part of it is because so much of the world tour and the elite surfing has now been dominated by Brazilian surfers and, uh, and Surfer Magazine is an English publication and people are more likely to vote for the surfers that they're reading about in their own language. And so they're just, they're kind of a little bit lost and voting for the people that they find compelling. Maybe, but yeah. I, I still feel like the surfer poll is big enough and, and is, is well-established enough 
that that I would have expected other pe- you know people to have been voting anyway. Who would you have voted for, Surfer of the Year, Harry? It would probably have been Medina, Julian Wilson. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any free surf that are immediately springing to mind. But Chipper Wilson probably had the best edit of the year. That or uh, uh, Noah Dean had a really good edit as well, and he wasn't on the list. Uh, he won something, but he, yeah, he, I think he won video part of the year. What what about would you would you vote for someone that you've there's just you've just discovered and is is like influential for you, but maybe you know they haven't they haven't done anything themselves massive that year. Yeah. Jerry Lopez. <laughs> Are you campaigning for You're a so real edgy, hill spot? <laughs> I was thinking about how much I've enjoyed watching Devin Howard surfing this year. Oh, Devin on the list would be amazing. Yeah, like he's really in, he's probably influenced me more than any other surfer this year. I would say you've been riding a collector, haven't you? I got my big collector. I love <laughs> that board. Um, yeah, I mean, just one more little piece for your hypothesis. Philippe Toledo came in above Medina, and like in the press. Philippe is way more popular with American surfers rather than Medina. Oh, that's interesting. So that, and it, but Medina is like vastly more popular in Brazil. I think he has like maybe two or three times more Instagram followers. He's that's interesting. He's I wonder like why that is. Hero. Yeah. It, it, mm. I mean, I I must say I find listening to them both being interviewed. I find Felipe is someone that I would. I feel like oh yeah, I'd like to sit down and hang out with him. You know, and Medina, I'm sure Gabriel is a perfectly nice guy. I just, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have that sort of X factor that makes me think, oh, he's a really cool guy I'd like to sit down and have a beer with. I feel like if I sat down for a beer with Gabriel Medina, there would just be like an slightly awkward, stony silence where <laughs> I crack jokes and he sort of didn't laugh. <laughs> You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Okay, listeners. So as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, between us recording the last episode and me getting the edit done and getting it all put up, we had probably one of the biggest days in competition in, in many, many years. Everything kind of came together. On, on Monday, the 26th of November, the WSL had four contests running with, with big, big implications all on the line. We had the Vans World Cup of Surfing at Sunset Beach, which is the last stop on the WQS. So people were competing to see whether they would make it onto the World Tour next year. Uh, and also, obviously, for uh, the Triple Crown. We had the women's WCT event uh, at Honolulu Bay with the world title on the line. We had the Big Wave World Tour event taking place at Jaws for the men and for the women. And then lastly, we had the Longboard World Championships taking place over in Taiwan. Man, I bet viewership for the Longboard Championship (laughs) is down. Because I feel like I'm in the upper echelon of Longboard fans, and that wasn't even like that wasn't even I wasn't even going to touch that yeah. when the other guys are on. So so yeah, this was this was sort of pretty impressive that that, that we had this big swell event that came in um, through Hawaii. It was big enough to set Jaws off, uh, which then obviously also meant that the waves at Honolulu Bay were absolutely fantastic. And, and lastly, you know, big big good competition conditions for for Sunset Beach as well. I have to say, well done to the WSL. Like that's that's no mean feat to have all of those things streaming at the same time. Like we always knew that they were they were a big media company, but to be able to put uh, all four of those on, have all of those live streams running at the same time, have the competitors, have the commentators, have the camera crews, you know, all of that up and running simultaneously. Like that is quite an impressive feat. I wonder if that was by accident. Can't have been by design. 
Well, no, because I mean the, the the Jaws event has a six month waiting period, so so that was just called green light on. Someone would have had to have thought of that as a worst case scenario because the three of those events that have the simultaneous windows all require the same swell. Well, yeah, I mean the Honolulu Bay and the Sunset were probably always going to overlap because there was quite a big overlap in their contest windows in their waiting periods. That said, they did wait till quite late on sunset to run. And then they did run the women's. I mean, the, the, the waiting period for the women started on the 25th. And so, you know, by the 26th, they were already rolling. So the, the, that little bit of overlap that already existed, like it, it ended up that way. I mean, the cost of that just has to be astronomical for them. I mean, to just to have four sets of camera crews on staff at four different locations i mean that that's really expensive on its own do you think i mean given obviously equipment would need to be doubled up but i wonder whether they just had you know all the people that were on maui already for the women's world tour event Mm -hmm. i wonder whether they just had a lot of them pulling double time for the big wave world tour because you know that that's only one day and if they if they've got like enough crews, like possibly they just had everybody working overtime on that one day. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly, I I don't know the skill level that it takes to to operate one of those cameras. I mean, it's got to be pretty hard work. I mean, just us filming on the beach for our coaching is, is pretty difficult for an hour. Um, having that kind of focus for a while, I mean, that's hard. I feel like it would be remiss to talk about the Jaws event without talking about Kai Lemony's uh, top ten. I felt like Asher would have an opinion on that. Oh, it's amazing. Kyle Lenny is just, he's like a way cooler version of Laird Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) He's like Laird Hamilton minus Laird Hamilton plus like a lot of cool. Laird Hamilton minus the woo. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that's got to be the great, I'm going to just call this, I think that's the greatest maneuver in the history of surfing. Was it the top turn into the drop? Yeah, well, they were calling it a floater, the commentators. but I don't know. He was bottom turning on a 30-something crazy foot wave, whatever, just big, big jaws, and he went up for the lip and then just went into a big, like, top turn. He just did a freaking top turn at 30-foot jaws. No one's done that before. It was wild. Just to even attempt it was crazy. And then as he came back down the wave, he airdropped 20 feet, probably, and then just landed on his board. Two stories. Yeah, like, it was just absolutely bananas. Is that a better maneuver than... This time yesterday, Kelly Slater, maxing pipeline, dropping in, foam ball nips him, swipes him off his board. He does, and I thought that he just fell off on his board and rode out on his belly, but he fell off in the barrel, grabbed the board with one hand and did kind of like a hydroplane, like, yeah, like a hand plane exit, skipped up onto his feet before he came out. That was that was going to be my what to watch. That's the that greatest. That's the greatest three point wave in the history of surfing, with no question. I couldn't believe it because I didn't think he was going to make the barrel. So, listeners, this was the round three, round three heat twelve. I want to say yeah, it was the last it was, round against. Uh... It was Slater and Felipe, Felipe Toledo, and yeah, and Slater took off on this 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 pipe wave going left and just completely disappeared, and then he kind of got he pops out at the end, and everyone goes crazy, and then we saw the side angle, and we saw him come off the board. I don't. Would you rather have been Kai Lenny doing the top turn at Jaws, or would you rather have been Kelly Slater body surfing, flipping onto the board at Big Pipe? Well, there's the 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 wave that Kelly Slater caught at Pipe. I could potentially see myself having a crack at. So that one because that wave that Kai Lenny caught at Jaws. <laughs> I want nothing to no, do with. I would if I was sitting in the boat in the channel watching that. I think my heart would just be going through the roof. Yeah, Jaws is so you know. It, 
when you watch the webcast, I mean, it's it's truly spectacular. But I mean, to see a wave like that in person, is it's just it's almost incomprehensible. Yeah, that, that's something that I think is on my list of things that I really want to really want to get done one day. Yeah, and, and now and that you're going to be living by LA Airport, you've got Hawaii, Fiji, and Tahiti just a uh, a direct flight away. I might have to come and swing by, and we have to do true. some strike Maybe missions. Maybe not time to sell the pintails. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to uh, contextualise what you guys have been talking about, so that the the Jaws event. First of all, we had the women's uh, event that ran. Kiana Kelly won uh, the event in the end. Before they then sent the men out, and then with the with the swell rising, the waves getting bigger and bigger and bigger, they eventually called the event off for safety reasons which ended up being kind of controversial because straight after that, Kyle Lenny went out on a tow board and, and as we were talking about, did some fairly impressive surfing. But there were quite fairly. a... <laughs> but there were, <laughs> but there were, there were actually there were a bunch of free surfers that went and continued to paddle through the day after the event had been called off for safety. Uh, so that was a little weird when they restarted the following day. They managed to run through the whole thing, but in much smaller, uh, much tamer conditions. Billy Kemper eventually won that event. Kiala Kenley, like I say, won the women's event. Uh, the thing that was actually really cool was when the women were out competing, uh, that week happened to be the week that Bonnie Toy was staying with us at the resort. And uh, regular listeners will know we, we interviewed Bonnie a few weeks ago um, about a piece that she'd written interviewing all the, the girls that were going to take part in the contest at Mavericks. Um, but as it happened, she'd pretty much spoken with and knew all of the women that were competing in the women's big wave event. So it was very cool sitting with her and, and watching it on the big screen. <clears throat> Going back to the, the sunset event, in the end, uh, Zeke Lau won the event. But the, the, the biggest bit of news was uh, a fight between Hawaiian Tana Hendrickson and Brazilian Michael Rodriguez, uh, who ended up having a little bit of a punch-up in the parking lot. What do you guys think about the the little edit that the WSL have put together showcasing Felipe Toledo's passionate year because there's a little bit in it where he like fully just punches his own board in anger. What do you guys think about glorifying people who can't help but have their temper manifest itself in physical form? Do you think that that is a good or a bad thing? Well, from the question, I think I'm quite, quite let down the road of... Uh... And I like Felipe Toledo, and like, like everyone loses their set temper sometimes. And, you know, I, I admire the passion, but, you know, I, I could see myself as a young grommet watching that and going, oh, it's, it's cool to, like, lose your shit and punch the board in this case. I don't know, I just... Uh, I'm not sure that I'm totally on board with kind of glorifying that. I think, that was a, I think that was a big technical foul on the WSL. I mean, Philippe mm. Toledo doing that in the back corner of the locker room like, kind of in, indicates to me that he, that was sort of a private thing. You know, he, it was not like he did it in the competitor's area. It wasn't like he did it walking out of the water. And, you know, I, I don't think it's cool to lose your temper like that anyway. But if he was bubbling over and, you know, if he did need an event, he, he obviously made a point of doing it in private. And... It was like a TMZ style video. It was it was awkward. It like it made my toes curl. And I think it showed Julian Wilson doing the same. And yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think like to to say that 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 you know, well, at least he contained it until he was in the locker room. I mean, they are surely aware. Like that there are there is always a camera in the locker room. There there is never a situation where there isn't a camera crew in that locker room. 
and, and in the backstage area. And so if someone's come in from a heavy heat, like, of course, the camera's watching you. Like, if you're going to contain it, wait until you've gone back to, to your rental property. Wait until you're out in the parking lot and there isn't a camera. Like, I, I think if you are a world tour surfer, you have to accept that, that the locker room and the competitors area is as public an area as standing on the beach or sitting out in the lineup. Yeah, but if you're WSL and you're trying to portray this image of professionalism and bringing surfing to the masses, like what is the point of that being the face that you show? I mean, it's obviously not cool for Toledo to do, but why, you know, out of everything that they could have shown of Toledo being passionate, you know, I feel like that was a bit of a misstep. Possibly, I, but I, but I think the alternative is to basically show pictures of people crying, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's okay. You know, the, 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 if you think about any other professional sport, whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, whether it's whatever. Like, there are incidents where people are smashing clubs, people are shouting, people are screaming, and there are incidents when people are, are choosing to to you know burst into tears over it. And I, I I don't think it's possible to be that elite level of an athlete and not care enough to either explode or burst into tears and you know Ke- kelly has famously gone off and burst into tears on various occasions uh at, at, at the end of contests um other guys have punched boards in the middle of contest but i i think you can't have either and i think the wsl has to choose which side of that they show well why didn't they show that? i mean medina is famous for uh, in Portugal, and I think it was 2012, losing the final to Julian Wilson, and he had a full temper tantrum on the stage. I mean, he not only did he cry, but he threw his trophy on the ground. That's like But that's definitely if, not in their edit. I, I, I'm, I'm going to profoundly disagree with you, Harry. I think that any adult, especially a man, just because men are physically stronger than women... You have to be able to control your temper so that you don't take it out physically. Like, that is just not... Like, that's a basic life skill as a human being. If, you, if you're an adult... Listeners, if you're an adult man and sometimes you get in a bad mood and you have to punch something, you need to fix that. Yeah. That's not okay. Didn't you have to take your car to get fixed because you punched the air vent out? That is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. I did. I, I was, it, was, it was a few years ago and I was in my car and I can't remember what happened, but there was like, yeah, a very stressful day. And I remember banging the dashboard of my car, but like, that's not okay. <laughs> that's not okay. And you wouldn't see that, especially in a Surf Simply video, like saying, hey, come and stay here. Look how much Rue cares about the business running well. But I think that that just speaks to my point that it, it requires a passion and a, and a devotion to something like it Surf simply would not be where it was if, if you no, didn't no, no, care no, no, as no. much as you that's, do that, that's the to part where I, you can get upset about no, it. No, that's the part I profoundly disagree with. I think that what's toxic is to, is to, is to conflate physical shows of aggression with passion and caring. Like the two things are, are connected on some kind of like basic evolutionary level and, you know, as, as functioning members of a, of a rational society, they should be uncoupled at some point as you become an adult. And what we shouldn't do is say to people, look, here's someone who really cares and they care so much that they're punching things. That, because it, it, it completely tells people that they don't need to uncouple those two things. And like, we absolutely should. I think that's a good point. But, but I do think that from the WSL standpoint, they've got 10 seconds to show you that somebody cares. 
and I and I with no words, with no context, with a clip, they've got to show you that somebody cares deeply and passionately about winning this event. So by um, that, if you follow that logic to its logical conclusion, mm -hmm. then if you have a short enough time frame, you can use any demonstration of behavior, no matter how unethical, in order to make an emotional point if you're just your edit window is short enough. And well, that's, I don't, that's just creating a, a silly straw man. It's, like, it's, it's a bit of a slippery slope argument, but I feel that the example of Toledo punching his board is already quite a long way down that slippery slope. It's not at the top of it. I, I think it's much harder to persuade a sports audience to bring them on board with an emotional journey that, that doesn't involve a, a physical display of passion. Like it, it, to do it in a 10 second clip, I, I don't know how you would do it. I think that other physical displays of passion are, are, are much more appropriate. Like, like you said, like tears, you know, that's, it, that's a, a much more appropriate response rather than striking something. Maybe this, this does speak to Rue's point, but I, but I think somebody banging a fist into the board uh, is seen as socially okay, whereas, whereas for a guy to be bursting into tears, I think a lot of people don't do that. Like a lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable doing that in public. You are, we are, we are recording in 2018. I just want to check. You're not yeah. recording in 1950. No, I'm right? not saying I agree okay. with it. I'm just saying that there, there are a lot of people involved, you know, in that environment that would feel that, that somebody's tears were a lot more like personal and, and, and should be handled more carefully than someone getting a bit upset and like banging. I mean, the, but I, the WSL I, I think, aren't thinking about how they should be handled carefully. They're thinking about how they can make the most evocative edit. Right. And they're going for the lowest hanging fruit. And I would say that to the WSL, I, you know, I, you've 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 gone for the lowest common denominator, the easy win. And you've probably won. Like it, it is an emotionally evocative piece of uh, filming. But like, I just don't think it's cool. And I don't think that that kind of behavior is stuff that we should we should kind of put on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. Of which probably the WSL agree with because they just reprimanded. Michael Rodriguez and Tana Hendrickson for their display of aggression, perhaps from passion in some way. But that was another really know. weird one, though, because like they kind of went quiet on that. There was like so for listeners that haven't seen the video that started this whole conversation, it was uh, this really kind of TMZ style uh, conflict between Tana Hendrickson, uh, young Hawaiian, and Michael Rodriguez, who's on the world tour. Right? Um, there for some reason or another. Michael Rodriguez was walking up the stairs and he was with a bit of an entourage and the entourage has one of the kind of 360 degree cameras and Tanner Hendrickson just walks up to him and is, is you know, being way over the top mantra, slaps his acai bowl out of his hand and then they just kind that's of... That's so Hawaii. Yeah, that's so... <laughs> as I said that, I was like, ugh. He slaps his acai he bowl. He slapped his organic his acai bowl. Food. That's so 2018. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, then they have this like really awkward tussle as as you know most fights usually go, and they like really chastised Tanner Hendrickson, and like they kicked him out of the pipe trials. He got I think he's fined five or ten thousand dollars to get his uh, license to compete in WSL events uh, reinstated. And Michael Rodriguez was just in he was just in the event the next day, and you know it, it, in the video it's like quite obvious that they're both aggressing like it's not like one was looking for an altercation and the other wasn't what, why why do you think it came down they, they came the judgment came down so harshly on one side i don't know i i honestly i just have 
and I did quite a bit of research on it as well. You know, Stab covered it extensively, maybe too extensively. <laughs> um, and, and I just, I, I, I didn't really hear, especially from the WSL, any, you know, compelling argument on why one was punished and not the other. All of which has sidelined us a little bit from probably the most important thing, the, the conclusion of the Women's World Tour. Um, so Steph Gilmore won her seventh world title. So she's now tied with Lane Beachley. Lane Beachley, although Lane Beachley would claim that she has eight because she won the Women's Masters title this year. Oh, there we go. Uh, anyway, so Steph Gilmore firmly recapturing her competitive spirit this year, but did not win the event. Uh, Carissa Moore and Malaya Manuel surfed through the final. Carissa got an amazing 10-point ride to win the event. I'll put the highlights of that event on the on the show notes, listeners. And if you want to just see some really, really good rail surfing from the girls, it, it's a fantastic little video. Did any of the girls punch any of their boards? Does, does that mean they didn't care as much? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that we could probably find photos of them punching boards. Steph has. I can definitely remember her punching a board when she lost an event a couple of years ago. You sounded like you said that with 100% confidence and then retreated to like 80% confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just, because I said I can definitely refine the video. I think regardless of the Steph punch or no punch, WSL obviously didn't use that in their promotional material. That's not the face of women surfing that they're. Ah, there you go. This is going to lead us onto my feature segment. So all of that, just to just to just to wrap up everything uh, we've been talking about, as you as you heard listening, uh, pipelines finished as well. So uh, congratulations to Gabriel Medina on his win. How much would you guys have loved to have seen Medina and Slater in a final together? I would have preferred that to Julian Wilson because it probably would have been Slater's last pipe final. That would have been pretty special. I think he's competing next year, isn't he? He sounded pretty confident talking about his run next year. I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do. I don't know if Slater's watching the same level of surfing that I am because the kids are just going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like there are so many surfers at such a high level now that I don't know. We'll see. This 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 year and last year is the first real time on tour when Slater at his best is not as good as the other surfers at their best. Oh, yeah. do you think? I think that's been the case for quite a while. I think this year's almost been unique in that Slater's had the occasional return to form that we didn't see last year and the year before. It's amazing that he's still even in the conversation, really. Yeah. Yeah. If I was Slater, I'd probably just keep doing this until I was like comically old, coming in at like <laughs> 18th or not, like just making the cut. Just scooting by. I probably would. It's a a great life. Entering both the normal tour and the Legends events. Yeah. (laughs) Just because you can. A bit confused showing up in his his underpants. (laughs) (laughs) Awkwardly watering his lawn right at the pipeline. (laughs) Listeners, you all just thought of Kelly in his underpants. Sorry. Um, so all of which just to wrap up the season uh, with our fantasy surfing uh, for the men uh, Garrett Wilman won the uh, pipe event but overall fully stoke Ed just managed to sneak the win over the top of Kyan's Killers with the women's fantasy surfer uh, Dahu Lewis and the news uh, and Teddy two times got joint first at the Maui event. Uh, but overall, Barrel Slayer just managed to beat Team Front Bum. <laughs> good, good names, listeners. I'm wondering where, what happened to last year's uh, decisive winner, Boner Man. Yeah, he's gone quiet. Come on, Boner Man. Yeah. Oh. He's gone flaccid, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so in the last episode, Jesse was talking about how the WSL announced equal pay for women, and uh, obviously, I think that's a great thing. Um, and it actually happened back in September, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I just wanted to talk about some of the criticisms of it, because I think that there are some criticisms of the papers being equal, which on the surface seem really legitimate. And... Uh, well, in, in many ways are legitimate, but I wanted to talk about why it's something that we should do anyway. And I think it's really important to do this because all of the proponents of equal pay, I think, make the mistake of not giving airtime to the concerns and criticisms that people have of it. And by doing that, you actually give a lot of room to the other side to, to kind of gain traction because you're just ignoring these genuine concerns. So I want to like look at them and, and kind of pull them apart a little bit. So for everything I read online and on Facebook and everything, there was like three main criticisms. Well, maybe four if you split one of them into two. So the first one was that women just don't surf as well as men do. Okay. The second one was that women don't have to surf as many heats as men do in order to win a contest, which I think you alluded to in the last episode. Yeah. And you were talking about the, you know, the same being true in tennis where the men have to play five sets and the women play three. So actually, if you work it out per set, the women get paid more than the men. So in surfing, of course, the women only have to beat half the number of people that the men have to beat in order to win a contest. And then the other way of looking at it is, well, the, the, the WSL is essentially an entertainment machine. You know, I mean, for all of the surfing and athleticism and waves, ultimately, if no one wanted to watch it, the WSL wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. And the men draw much higher viewing figures than the women. So in terms of the surfers being the product, the men are a better product and, you know, arguably should be rewarded accordingly. And, and that kind of translates into the advertising dollars as well. The WSL runs off advertising. If you're getting more eyeballs on Kelly Slater and therefore you can sell the, the Jeep ad space for more, then surely it makes sense that he should be paid more than his female counterpart. So all of those, legit, all of those criticisms are absolutely factually correct. And, and I'm not going to argue with any of them. But I think that there's one fundamental mistake that all of those people who are making those criticisms are making. And that's that like, nature isn't fair. Nature never will be fair. It won't be convenient. But what we do isn't dictated to us by nature. So yes, all of those things are true, but that's not the point. The point is we're in the business of trying to build a society that's better. You know, I, I think that quite often when people talk about the differences biologically between men and women, you know, they, they get in so much trouble because it's something that feminists like myself are really uncomfortable with. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. In, in 2005, Lawrence Summers, who is the president of Harvard, pointed out that me, with uh, men in science and math skills, there was greater variation from the mean average uh, ability than there was with women. So he wasn't saying that men are better in sci uh, at science and maths than women. He was just pointing out that the data showed that there was less clumping around the average. And so the tail end of the graph showing ability was more sort of stretched out for men. So at both the lower end, there was more men and also at the top end, there was more men. So when you were looking at Harvard University, which is the top 1% of the top 1%, statistically, you would expect to have more men than women uh, in STEM subjects, in science and math subjects. And he was like pretty much thrown from the ramparts for just for, 
for saying that out loud. And it's not particularly controversial science. And he wasn't crucially saying that men are better at these subjects than women are. He was just pointing out more variation from the mean. And more importantly, he wasn't saying that that was predictive of any one individual. You can't take that data and make a prediction about any one person. And, you know, I, I think the fact that everyone in, in, in school is not taught basic critical thinking and statistics along with reading, writing and arithmetic causes this problem because it means someone says something like that and all they read in, is the headline which is, you know, Harvard president says that men are better than women at maths, which is not what he said. Another classic example is uh, James Damore's Google memo when he was talking about some similar research which showed differing interests, again, on average between the gender and he was um, inferring from the data that he thought you were more likely to find more male computer analysts, uh, sorry, more male computer programmers than you were female computer programmers. Uh, and, and again, he was fired from Google and he was dragged through the press. And actually, most of the people that read his 10-page memo said that it was basically just an accurate portrayal of what the scientific data on the subject said. There wasn't even very much opinion in there. So if you find either of those examples really uncomfortable, listeners, let's just talk about something um, much more uncontroversial. So something we were talking about earlier on the show, right? Men's predisposition for displays of physical aggression is way, way higher by, by, by any study that's ever been done than it is with women. But that doesn't mean that there aren't lots of women that are higher than lots of men. So again, it doesn't actually tell us what any one individual is going to do. So while that data is interesting, you can't use it to look at someone and make a, a, a judgment about them. You, it shouldn't prejudice you if you've got an understanding of how statistics work. But isn't it, obviously from a mathematical standpoint, you can't, you can't extrapolate something that is true of everybody and, and, and use that to make a prediction about an individual. But at the same time, that's kind of what we all do on a completely daily basis i mean it's it's just how humans have evolved to function is to take a piece of data about a group and apply it to the individual right so one thing that you can't do and i think this is the mistake that feminism is making which is sort of shooting itself in the foot is if there is a correlation that appears between one group of people having a particular characteristic in one way and that correlation that association does exist in the data if you just say it doesn't exist, people will notice it anyway and they will be prejudiced based on it. And actually I think it's much better to say, yes, it does exist, but this is how it works and it's not important. You know, when we're deciding like, how do we make society better? How do we make the world tour better? How do we make women surfing better? How do we make, how do we have better equality within surfing? What you have to do is figure out, do you have prejudice? Do you have people that are, that are making those kind of judgments about people and that is filtering down some way? Or do you have systemic sexism? And these are two really different things. So prejudice might be if someone makes a judgment about a girl because she's a girl rather than a guy and then decides to pay them less just based on that or, or, or decides to portray them in the media in a different way based on their gender, right? Whereas systemic sexism could mean that nobody involved all the way along the pipeline is in any way prejudiced. So an example of systemic sexism might be if you have to, um, if you have to be successful at a particular job, 
but you need to stay engaged in employment all the time and be working certain many hours a week in order to make partner by a certain age, and you decide to have a kid and you're a man, then you don't need to take that time off work necessarily. Whereas if you're a woman, you do, and that's disadvantaged you in, in getting to become partner by 30 or whatever your goal is. And it could be that no one in that whole organization is in any way sexist, but the system is designed to disadvantage women. So what you can't do when you're trying to work out whether you have prejudice or systemic sexism is just look at the outcome. You can't just say, okay, 70% of physics professors are male, therefore physics has is, 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 is got systemic sexism in it. What you have to do is actually look at the whole pipeline. You have to look at who's coming in at the beginning. If you've got an equal number of talented men and women or two different groups coming in at the start of the pipeline, and then you've got a disproportionate amount of one group coming out at the end of the pipeline who are successful in that field, that tells you you've got systemic sexism. And that's something that you need to go in and fix. And this is where we circle all the way back round to surfing. Because there hasn't been as much of a prize purse, there hasn't been as much of an incentive for women to succeed in surfing because it's so much harder to make a living at it. So increasing the women's prize purse so that it's equal with the men isn't about entertainment or advertising or how many people they're building or surfability. It's about fixing the front of the pipeline. It's about getting young women to realize that there can be a career there and then they can start coming in. And that doesn't mean we're gonna have other problems along the way but that incentive fixes the front end. And that's why, despite all of those criticisms being legitimate, this is a really, really important thing that hopefully other sports will follow the way in. We received a really good email from Joe Santamaria, who's from Southern California, and asked a pretty comprehensive question about longboarding. Joe asked, um, I very much enjoy the podcast and was hoping to have you elaborate on longboard fins and board characteristics. This is partially inspired by the C.J. Nelson interview, which I thought was very interesting, but did leave me with questions about his line of boards and more, his more specific thoughts about the future of single fin designs. I was wondering if you could offer an in-depth review of longboard design categories and practical approaches at some point. Wide point back California design versus Australian adaptions, wide point center or forward designs, which seem to be many and varied, classic Takayama, Bing, Yader, Hobie, compared to newer creations by the same companies, or current mod traditional designers, which he included Tyler Hazekian, Dead Kooks, Anderson, Tyler Warren, CJ Nelson, etc. Um, different rail designs and edge and their performance characteristics. Bottom contours, rolled, flat versus nose concave and none. And pitfalls of specialty characteristics. And then he goes on to talk about how he lives in Southern California and he gets a lot of influence from different longboard styles and sees pretty much every design under the sun and just wanted a little bit of vocabulary behind it. So, so you got a full book ready for him. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was say, that, so, that's like the description of an entire podcast series. <laughs> so Joe, I'm going to apologize because there literally is a book written about this. Uh, Matt Warshaw wrote it and it's a giant coffee table book. And a lot of the points you asked for, there are connected, but there's a lot of steps in between them. So I'm going to try to do my best job summarizing it. But guys, if you have any questions, um, please ask. And my best advice to you is to look in the show notes because a lot of these design concepts we're talking about are going to be a lot easier understood if you're just referencing it with a photo of the design. So um, I'll do my best to describe it, but looking at the picture will, will really help. So the first thing you asked about was wide point back California design versus Australian adaptions. And 
I think that's a really good question because wide point back longboards are pretty in vogue right now. We've talked a lot in the past about California design longboards, but when we're talking about that, we're not talking about the wide point back design. That is a design by a guy named Dale Velzi. Um, Dale Velzi was quite a character uh, in Southern California in the 50s and pretty much changed the game with his pig design. For bonus points, which room number is the Velzi pig in? That is in number two. Don't know. I think it is a number two. <laughs> it is number two. Yeah. Man, we, I could have just thrown any number and you wouldn't have known. Well, I definitely know it's one, two, or three. So, so listeners, in every room here at the resort, we got 10 rooms, and Harry and Asher between them got 10 classic boards made, and we have them in chronological order going through the room, starting with a Bob Simmons spoon from 1948 in room one, and a Simon Anderson thruster in room 10. It's a Steve List fish in room three. Yeah, although it yeah. should be in room four, but it didn't fit. <laughs> it's really annoying so room three and four are just one year out of order I think it's a, quite a testament that two of the boards he's asking about are on our wall one is room two and one's room four um, but anyway so to go back to it um, the California pig is, is like a massive design leap it essentially um, was the moment that people stopped surfing in a straight line down the line and started actually turning the board 180 degrees um, back in the curl and, and how that was achieved was putting on a, a way way bigger fin than was normal at the time we call them a d fin now um, or kind of a crescent moon and pushing the wide point all the way back to the tail which which gave a bunch of float where you put your back foot so you could put your weight way back and, and, and spin the board around now although it had a really big impact on surfing um, that's not the design that's being copied when you see um, pig style surfboards in the water today Presumably as well, but moving that wide point back, as, as well as providing a lot of, of, of sort of surface area at the back of the board for, for keeping momentum through, presumably compared to the boards of the day, because they're all balsa wood, you know, re yeah, relatively heavy, you know, the, the, the noses on those original pigs were so pulled in, it must have done a huge amount to reduce the swing weight yeah. on, on, you know, nine and a half, ten foot boards. Yeah, that's, a, that's another really big one, was, is the actual weight that you were whipping around through the radius of the turn was like way, way less. So that, that added to the maneuverability as well. Um, the design that you're mentioning, the Australian pig, that would be influenced by Nat Young. So that's a late 60s design. That's a 66 design. And, and they took the outline of the California pig, but that board was essentially designed to refute the other California design you're talking about. So let me get things in line. There's a big gap. I think it was 1952 versus 66 between the, the, the California pig and, and the Aussie pig. And in the meantime, people got really into nose riding. Just to sequence things out, surfing in a straight line, and then people got really into turning, and then nose riding became key. And guys like David Nueva pretty much perfected nose riding. And to do that, they, they shaped the classic California style board that you're referencing. So that's very parallel rails that we've talked about. We've talked about it in, in episodes before. Um, and it's made to basically go in, in a straight line. So when these Australian guys came around and Nat Young famously brought a self-shaped board to the 66 World Contest. He moved the wide point back in the same way, but the board was much, much thinner. And rather than a D-fin, um, it, it, it had a, a George Greeno-inspired, very raked-out fin that made the board just wildly maneuverable. Would I be right in saying you know, that the, the original Velzy Pig... The maneuvering that it was designed to do was more sort of pivotal, getting getting back and and then almost sort of pivoting the board into a into a cutback. Where Nat Young's 
board was really designed for for putting it more on rail. Yeah, it, absolutely. It was it was basically an arcing turn rather than a pivot turn. Yeah. Um, but just to to bring it back to what you were talking about, so when you hear someone talk about pigs, um, which is so popular right now. They're referring to that Australian board, which is going to be specifically designed around a really maneuverable um, variety of longboarding. And when you've got that wide point way back in that style, it makes nose riding a lot harder. It makes nose ride, riding different. So of the two boards that we've talked about that you're going to see, that California board with the parallel rails and then the wide point backboard, the pig that you've referenced, um, the one with the parallel rails is basically going to fit on the wave in a much straighter line, right? If you were just to pick the board up and place it on the the curve, I mean, it's obviously going to just want to hold that straight line a lot better. Um, So it nose rides really well in a lot of different places. When you do eliminate that area in the nose, like the pig does, it can fit in a much tighter spot. So your levitator is a good example of a board with, with really, really parallel rails. And have you ever noticed as you walk up it, sometimes it can feel like almost like there's too much lift. If you're in a really steep section, it, it, it's almost a bit wobbly, right? <laughs> that happened to me so many times this morning. <laughs> I think I was specifically thinking of a time where you're just like, whoa. Yeah, I just got bounced off the front when there was a little bump in the wave. Yeah. But then it's interesting, the, the pocket knife which is the other thing, is, is much more like the pig, right? Yeah, that, that's where its inspiration is from. So the, those California style boards, are, those are like a one-fit-all solution for nose riding, and they work really well in soft waves. And then when you reduce that area in the nose, you can, you can deal with those bumps, and you can deal with a much curvier wave like the variety that Nat Young was surfing in, like Noosa or, or the other uh, Australian points. But, but the trade-off is that you've got less stability on the nose and that you have to be in a steeper part of the wave when you're trying to get to the nose. Absolutely. So the trade-off is you need to more, be more technically proficient in how you position yourself. Um, you need to be able to do more. You need to be able to utilize the board's strength to, to do those critical carves to put yourself really deep in the pocket. And that's something that we struggle with a lot when you're coaching people on longboarding is it's Nose riding isn't necessarily the end-all be-all. It's basically what you do when you're in the right place on the wave. So if you don't have a sound understanding of, of horizontal maneuvers, you cutbacks or actually floating over sections, then you're going to have a really difficult time with that nose ride. Tell me if what I'm about to say is in line with your analysis. So I've got my levitator, right, which you've just described, mm-hmm. and that's got the straight rails. It's got more width in it. And it, and it goes really, really well in very, very small waves. It's so forgiving when you walk to the nose. Mm-hmm. As soon as the waves get a little bigger and steeper, like this morning, and when I say bigger, I'm talking like instead of knee high, we're like shoulder high, right? And they're, they're sort of sucking up a little bit more. Suddenly, that width makes the board pretty difficult to control. Yeah. And that's where the uh, sort of the Bing pocket knife, which is more in line with that pig kind of wide point back shape, actually is more optimal. In my opinion, I like riding my longboard when the waves are really small. And if the waves pick up, I'd rather go out on a fish or something. So of the two boards for me personally, I would much rather own a levitator over a pocket knife because the types of surf where I would want to take out a pocket knife, I would rather ride something else. I think think that's a really fair statement. Um, The only thing I would change is when thinking about what board works best, I would not concentrate as much on wave size. I would concentrate more on wave curve. Because you can have a really, really curved wave face, right? Uh, and 
you're still going to have that instability um, on the, the levitator because it does have so much surface area. The, the mechanic that allows you to walk up the board is the lift being generated over the, the, the whole surface area. And it has so much that it's going to get a ton of lift. So that's where that pocket knife comes in. So I would say not necessarily big wave or small wave because your levitator will work great in a big, slopey wave. Um, but as soon as you add curve, you, you really want to reduce that nose area. So You, you mean levitator will work well in a big, soft wave? Yeah, a, a big wave that um, the, the curve isn't quite as aggressive. So a big soft wave, exactly. Whereas as soon as it's, it's more steep, then, then you, you do want to cut a little bit off the, the sides. I did the classic thing where I got the pocket knife, surfed it a bit, realized I preferred my levitator. And then I was like, Marine, I've got you a present. <laughs> but it's worked out because she does surf pretty darn well on the pocket knife. Yeah, she does. She likes that one. It's pretty good. <laughs> Um, so the next point you asked is wide point center or wide point forward, uh, designs, which is characterized by a guy named Donald Takayama from South Shore, Hawaii, but most of his shaping career was in Oceanside. Um, the wide point pushed forward gives you more stability on the nose, um, with the idea that pulling in that tail a little bit makes it a little looser when you're doing your carving turns and the weight is back and you actually eliminate the rail line from the wave face. So like the board's kind of like the, the in the pink, which the, is the Takayama, and, and the board that we've got at the resort that's probably most similar is the... The, the wingnut? Nose rider? Nose rider from mm-hmm. Firewire? Yeah, so definitely those two, right? The, the in the pink is just like the ultimate representation of that design. Um, and they, they do work well. Um, I'm a little bit biased on this one because I don't really love the way that they surf. Um, the wide point forward does a really good job adding stability on the nose when you have less angle down the line, right? If you widen your nose too much, you, just like we talked about, you're going to get, you're going to lose that bit of stability. These boards are typically a lot thicker than your levitator. So sorry guys, I'm, I'm listeners. I'm, I'm using my hand a lot uh, to describe <laughs> this. Um, it, it, if you were to, if you were to be surfing perfectly parallel um, to the line of the wave, um, your elevator or levitator is going to work really well. Now, if you were to move at a slightly closer angle to the beach, so maybe you're at 45 degrees to that lip line, the in the pink is going to feel a lot more stable because it has more buoyancy in the nose. So it, it's using a slightly different mechanic to nose ride. It's, it's, it's using more water on the tail, offsetting your weight on the nose, rather than lift up the wave face. So I've got a double barrel question. So for our listeners, if you're looking down at an, an in the pink design or the, or the, the, the firewire wingnut design, so the design you're talking about, if you're looking at that from above, we've got the we've got the pocket knife, the pig with the wide point at the back getting narrow as you get forward. We've got sort of the levitator with the parallel rails. Or so, a Model T would be a really good example. Right. So, so what are we looking at when we're looking down at, at the in the pink? On the pig designs, the, the widest point is clearly the point closest to the tail. It's, it's probably about maybe two-thirds of the way back. If you're looking at this California design, it's, it's almost parallel in the rail lines. And if you're looking at this in the pink, it's, it's the widest point is closest to the nose. So the whole board kind of um, narrows to the tail, almost like a, almost like a teardrop, but a, a less exaggerated form. So, and, and that last board that you described is, is something that you personally don't really like surfing. So what is it that you don't like about that? So I find that it's, it's easier to nose ride in a soft section, but it's a lot more difficult to nose ride in a critical section. 
So I, I used to surf in In The Pink for a long time, but I felt like I gained a lot of bad habits because I could get away with surfing at a closer angle to the beach. You could do shorter nose rides. Um, it was really loose from the tail, but it didn't really push you towards surfing in the most critical part of the wave, which is essentially whatever your maneuver you're doing. Uh, that's the whole goal is to surf as close as you can to the whitewater without getting stuck in it. And the, the pig and the more parallel railed line boards I have personally found just anecdotally work a lot better in that critical section with the wide point forward, um, and a narrow tail, there's a much higher tendency for the tail to pop out and almost slide towards the beach. Follow me so far? Good good Mm -hmm. stuff. Super interesting. Sweet. So the next question he asked is, how the classic Takayamas and Bings and Yaters compare to the newer creations. And I, I think you lumped these all into one category when they not necessarily shouldn't, because original Bings are, are about 20 years older than an original Takayama. An original Bing is, is late 60s, whereas Takayama was in his heyday, you know, you know, through the 90s pretty much. So I think it's, I mean, it's worth saying at this point, isn't it, that, that, that a modern Bing or a modern Takayama is not shaped by the same people. It's Absolutely. The, the, the label has, I mean, kind of actually as Channel Islands now has, um, you know, has, has outlasted the, the, the founder and creator of that label. Yeah, so Bing Copeland still oversees Bing, but uh, all the shaping's done by Matt Calvani. Um, and Takayamas are not shaped by, I don't think anyone in the Takayama family, is, as Donald died about five years ago. Um, the big difference is a Takayama that you get now is basically the same as you would get in the 90s. Um, Donald was probably the best longboard shaper of all time, and his templates were really tried and true, and the way that the company has progressed, they they try to make it as close to the ones that he shaped as possible. They, they use his original templates. The Whoever it is that owns the company has a pretty solid quality control. They don't really give you much creative freedom, where a company like Bing... They're using the old templates, but the bottom contours are totally modern. The rails are different. Um, a lot of the outlines were really good from boards back then, right? They 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 thought that piece of the puzzle out well. An outline was a was sort of a box that they checked performance wise. Uh, however, modern rails and and bottom contours that really benefit these designs just hadn't come down the pipeline yet. So, for example, a, a modern Bing is going to be dramatically easier to surf than a board with the same shape from its original era. All right, so, uh, and then the other, uh, you call them, I think, mod traditional designers, like Dead Kooks and Tyler Warren and and CJ Nelson. Those guys are essentially just taking their spin on those original designs. And a lot of them, like Tyler Warren, they they don't necessarily just choose one. They, They can bounce between the three. You know, they're, they're all valid designs. They all have their days, as we've talked about. Um, but they've modernized just bits and pieces, um, specifically the rails in the bottom. Um, this is going to be a really brief oversight of a very complicated topic. But rails um, are described on a kind of a fraction. A 50-50 would be a, 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 the rail is the same curvature on the bottom as it is the top. Um, and then as you move further down that line, so say 60-40 or 70-30, the rail becomes different in its bottom half of the curve, meaning sharper. So you'd have a round curve at the top, whereas you've had a a bit more aggressive in the bottom. Um, And the benefit of a a round rail is when it's going 
uh, on a high line, water has a tendency to grab to it, to, to wrap around it, and you're going to have a much more locked-in feeling. Like imagine you're on the, the high line like you're on a, like a train track, whereas the more edge that you put in, the less water is going to grip that, so the more difficult it is to actually hold that high line, but the easier it is um, to actually break yourself off those tracks. So it's going to turn much better. So when we have two, if we have two rails and we have one that's, that's a soft, rounded rail equal on the top and the bottom, is that the rail that's going to grip us in the wave more? Or is the rail which is more softly curved on the top, <laughs> the curve on the bottom is more pronounced? Is, is that the one that's going to grip us into the wave more? Great question. The first one is the more 50-50 rail, the, the, the rounder it is, uh, the more equal it is in its curve, is the water's going to have an easier time to grip it as it wraps around. But as a drawback, it's going to, it's going to not perform as well from the tail. Which is, I always think it's very counterintuitive because the intuition, I think, is that something that looks more bladey, more knifey, would dig into the wave more and grip better. But actually, that's not the case, is it? Because it's the water sticking to the board as it wraps around that sucks the board into the face. Yeah, it's the function of the water actually curving around the rail line. I was going to add, as, as well as the, the sort of ratio of, of where the curve is, you know, the 50-50 or 60-40, you, you also then have the, the thickness of the rail. You know, you can have a, a thick 50-50 rail or a, a thin 50-50 rail. You can have a, a, a very thick 60-40 rail, sometimes called like a boxy rail, or you can have a, a, a very skinny knifed out 60-40 rail. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, you know, you don't choose one rail for the entire board's length. Like, the, the curvature of the rail at the nose, the midpoint, two-thirds of the way back, all the way to the back can all be vastly different. And that's sort of where the skill in these shapers is. And, and the, the designer of the surfboard is where you transition from one curvature uh, to the other. And, and really the difference between these guys, because they're all using pretty similar outlines, it's how they blend those rails together. I guess the, the simplest answer to your question is there's not a really a one-fit-all solution um, in, in surfing and longboarding particularly. The style of waves that people want to ride longboards in is so vastly different. Like, Rude, like you said, you know, a longboard is a great tool for you when the, wa the waves aren't up to par, when they're smaller and you want to maximize your fun. Or some people just prefer a ton of volume and, and want to ride a longer board in a variety of conditions. So they're looking for something that you can turn and nose ride. Other people just want to turn. So there isn't really one that's that's better or worse. There are ones that are better or worse for your particular objectives. I think just following on from that, one of the realizations that's brought me the most joy in my surfing was I, I sort of, I, I wouldn't have articulated this when this was my view, but with hindsight, it used to be for a long time. I used to be thinking that there was a board that I was searching for that was the optimum board for me. And I've I, I realized at one point that that just was, I was chasing a red herring and that that didn't exist. And instead I started thinking, okay, well, I want a bunch of different boards. And as soon as I feel like I want to change, I just use a different board. And on any given day, there's not an optimal board for me to ride. There's just a bunch of different options. And I, that may sound obvious if you've had that realization, but I think a lot of people just sort of take it for granted that they're looking for the optimum board for them. Like what's the right board for me is such a common question that we always get. Mm -hmm. And it's just the wrong question to ask. Yeah. I get asked that the exact same question, you know, what, what, what board should I ride? And I think the most common bit of advice that I give to people is you need to go out and try a lot of different boards, you know, go and, go and rent some boards, go and find a, a, a shaper or a, a company that has some demo boards and just try lots of different things because 
what one person likes another person doesn't you know you were mentioning before asha that that you know you're not a huge fan of the the wide point forward in the pink style designs mm. where i know that harrison loves them yeah um you know and, and will actually you, you know you really like that the wingnut mm-hmm. uh, nose rider that has that wide point forward uh, of all the boards that we have at the resort so the, it, it's not that one design is is better or worse than another it's just that the the there are certain things that you will find as an individual you like or don't like about certain designs. And it's not that, that that's right or wrong. It's just that you can only find it out by surfing a few different types of boards. But I, but I, I would say just for, just for clarity, I, I think that listeners, when you're going out and you're trying all of these boards, you should be thinking, how can I figure out how to surf this board? Not, is this the right board for me? I think that you can say, what's the best board for me to be on to learn this specific skill? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as coaches, a lot of our time is spent saying to people, look, right now, the skill you want to be focusing on is this, is cutbacks, floaters, taking off on steep waves, whatever it is. And then we might say, this is the best board for you to be on to learn this skill. But the best board for you to ride overall, I think that that's a fallacious question. Yeah. And I, I would say that in not knowing exactly where you are, um, in your surfing, Joe, I, I just as a general rule for all the listeners, I think when it comes to longboarding, especially when you're trying to develop the skill set, a really beneficial thing for you is going to be to put yourself on a board that does a lot of things pretty well. Maybe even to at the detriment of um, doing one thing expert level. Like a, 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 an Aussie pig is a really, really specific board. But surfing that board is going to make it difficult to learn all the other things if you don't already have that skill set, right? So a, a good way to approach this in your surfing progression is get a board that you can do cutbacks on and improve them, that you're going to be able to nose ride fairly well, um, that you're going to be able to, to, to trim pretty well. And then once you have the skill set down, once you can actually have those in your arsenal, then look at someone who you like their approach to surfing. Like you mentioned CJ Nelson, CJ Nelson surfs amazing, but he surfs much different than the guys that I want to emulate. So uh, my boards don't necessarily follow suit with CJs. Um, whereas someone that I really like their surfing might not be different. And it's not that just like you said, it's not that one's better uh, than the other. It's just, it's just the one that I want to push myself towards right now. Right now, yeah, that'll change in about a week, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're mentioning, you know, having a, a board that does, you know, everything okay. And so what, what would be a good example of that? Uh, I mean, I'm weirdly just thinking about the, the NSP longboards that we use, the oh, torque longboards that we use, yeah. that, that have, you know, a wide point probably somewhere around center, but the, the, you know, the nose is a little pulled in, the tail is a little pulled in, so it doesn't have an outline that's the same as any of the three boards that we've currently spoken about. You know, all of us are really into retro boards and some of these beautiful boards, and those, the Torques and the NSPs, like, they are the shape they are for a reason. They, you know, they, they're just the best all-round boards that are compromised between everything. And sure, they're not cool and hipster, and maybe they're not so beautiful that you want to hang them on the wall like a high-glossed, heavy-glassed classic Bing. But, you know, I love going out and surfing those classic boards in the same way that my dad really loved 1930s and 1940s classic cars. They're not the most functional things in the world, and they are beautiful and really fun to own and play with and use. But actually, from a 
getting your better functionally surfing better point of view, just like when you go and do driving lessons, you're probably going to use some very unglamorous, uncool, just kind of moderate compact car. That's what you want to be using when you're going out and actually just purely thinking about moving your surfing forwards. You're probably going to learn to drive in a Civic. Right, exactly. <laughs> Civic. Right? No, it's, it's just like, you know, I, you, you might be into riding shortboards, but that doesn't mean that you're going to ride the same board that Gabriel Medina won the world title on today. Like You don't need to push it to the extremity. Just Although that, I'd, I'd say that that's actually a slightly reverse comparison because some of those classic boards are actually less functional but beautiful and fun. Where, so you're, 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 I'd almost advocate riding something more functional, whereas the comparison between Medina is his board is like overly functionalized for his high performance surfing. That actually raises another question that we could talk about <laughs> on a full other podcast. But be really, really careful um, when you're shopping for boards too, um, too close to the original. Like you, you can go for you mentioned the the California pig earlier. Bing sells a ton of this model called the feral pig. And it's just a copy of a Velzy pig in foam and fiberglass. And I do not like it one bit. Like it, it's, it's fun to ride, but you're not going to do your best surfing on it. A lot of these boards, they do have, you know, beautiful resin tint, but they're, they're made to do some one thing really, really well. Whereas like, I would argue that it, it, it it will do the best nose riding, just like Gabriel's boards will pull into board barrels the best. But just like I probably can't surf that board like he does, I probably can't surf Joel Tudor's boards that are like really specifically for nose routing like he can. Like I don't think there are any. If you're going along the right design route, they they're not as an aggregate less functional. They're just more specific towards one thing. Does that that make sense? Yeah. For those people that are that are looking, you know, we <laughs> we spend a lot of our time talking about very beautiful and very fancy surfboards. And and you know we've 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 just ended up talking about you know stuff at the other end with the with the the talks the NSPs things like that. Are there examples of boards that that have that same kind of outline and shape and functionality, but maybe do have a little bit more uh, beauty and grace in with them as well? I will just say that our new quiver of seventy talks that we have look <laughs> freaking cool. They do. I mean, they're all like beautiful white boards, all kind of lined up. I mean, the NSPs are great boards, but they're kind of ugly. The spray jobs and everything. And yeah. I, I love that we've moved over to the, just the all plain white talks. Oh, they're beautiful. And our new, just like uh, Guanacaste wood uh, surfboard rancher. I think they look beautiful. Yeah. So I won't. I won't say any examples of the opposite of boards that you want to stay away from. But if you buy a board with the Takayama label on it it's probably a well thought out design uh, it, it it's probably a board that's going to be functional for it's going to be beautiful but it's also a functional design so guys a really good example for a board that might be designed pretty much purely around functional but still checks the boxes of beauty is check out the bing collector i mean we've talked about it a ton on here but it is like pretty darn good at a ton of things and it may not ha be absolutely unbelievable at any one thing but it's going to check a ton of boxes in a lot of places i i would say as well if you get a bin collector definitely get it with the quad option because i think personally that they surf much better as quads than as single fins because you can put them on rail and they'll hold all the way through quite a long rail turn and uh, actually, while we're talking, Will's gone quiet because he's gone on the Bing website and is scrolling through Bing boards to buy. Yeah, 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 I'll take them. <laughs> yeah. They are beautiful. So, Joe, um, I hope that at least somewhat answered your question. Um, I, I, I know that we omitted the bottom contours and fin 
bullet points, but those are just going to have to come in a later episode next time you guys have me. Next time, Asher, when you're doing it, you're going to be uh, doing it over the phone, so you're not going to be able to rely heavily on hand gestures to explain everything to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to sharpen up your podcast skills. I know. I'm going to drop my charades act. <laughs> we need to do like an agony aunt section for Asher to answer some of these questions whilst he's in California. <laughs> I could do that. Yeah. Dear Asher, that can be <laughs> Dear, idea. <laughs> Dear Asher. I caught my husband cheating on me with another <laughs> surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> So it's been a while, I think, since we've done a superhero of surf, but with recent events in our lives, I thought it was quite fitting for me to just write something as a bit of a tribute, really. Um, So I'll just go straight into it. Florida is famous for its surfing exports. From Kelly to the Hobgoods, Floridians are world champions. When we hear the word champion, we think of trophies and titles, and there's no question this week our superhero of surf has a few trophies. But I use the word champion here referring more to advocacy, a champion of people, an individual who changes the lives of those around them, a champion of learning, and a champion of teaching. That champion is our own Asher King. With the news, chicken skin. <laughs> with the news of Asher swapping Costa Rica for California, it's time we heard a short chapter in his pre-Surf Simply history. Am, am I allowed to ask how you came by this information? You can, and I will explain. A, a history for Asher that perhaps started in 1998 when Papa King, who helped put this superhero of Surf together, thank you, John, <laughs> um, when Papa King pushed a six-year-old Asher into a few waves near his home in Atlantic Beach, Florida. If anyone is interested in seeing the first ever photo of Asher surfing, head to the show notes. Uh, we have a bit of a gallery of your... Ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great ones in there. All week, Will has been just sharing photos that he's got of you when you were younger <laughs> oh, no. on WhatsApp, yeah. and they're yeah. so funny, and I've been just dying to show you, and I've been keeping it <laughs> oh, secret. Oh, man. We can go through them. There's, a, there's that want. great one of, of you sitting in a chair. You, I don't know, you must be like nine, eight or nine, and you're just looking very seriously at the Surfer Journal magazine, reading it really intensely it's the, the <laughs> on the beach. It's the, the Surfer's Guide to Florida. Oh, yeah, that's oh, it. Oh, yeah, i, I got to be about eight years old there. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> there's a particularly good hat, great, by the way. Good hat. I, that's what I was just yeah, about to say. say. Harry knows that one. Strong hat. There's a, a, a great, the, in fact, the first ever photo of you surfing, you have the leash on the wrong foot, which I think really? is fantastic. Oh, yeah, I don't even true. think I, I know that. this photo. Well, where did my dad find these photos? Never doubt a parent's ability to find an embarrassing <laughs> photo when yeah. questioned. My mum can have an embarrassing photo of me within about 0.01 of a second. <laughs> Good to know for the next time we do a Harry superhero, sir. Uh. <laughs> Do you want to have a look at a couple of them here before I go on? Oh, my gosh. So that is the first one of you ever surfing. So no what, 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 what are we looking at there, Will? This is a photo of, I don't know, it, well, it was 1998. We know that for sure. That board is seven feet long. It was <laughs> shaped by Josh Archery. Oh, yeah, you vividly, know. It's still in my, my, my parents' attic. So this one here. I know oh. the details of these photos. If yeah, you remember. yeah, I know that one. Uh, on that first one, Asher is going along leash on the wrong foot <laughs> and, uh, and kind of caught up on his back foot. His arms are splayed out wide. Kind of that back knee dropped in already, showing a little bit of style. I think that nose is going under the water. He's already edging a little too far yeah. forward towards yeah, the nose. Dig the flames, though. Is that what that is? Is that a oh, they, flame job? No, there were flames oh. on that board in 98. <laughs> the Bennett, pink railed longboard Asher in his living room, by the look of it, proudly stood in front of yep. it. Yep. This was the that pink Bennett was the first surfboard you won in a competition. Yep, that was it. How, how did that happen? How did you win it in a contest? Uh, I won it in a. I, fuck! I wish I would have won it in the actual surf contest. I won it in a raffle. 
Your dad never mentioned that. Yeah, I think he <laughs> might have been. <laughs> I entered a raffle and I got a. Um, yeah, it was the first. Uh, bef- before that, I had like a couple of like really performancey longboards, and that one was like a super heavy, resin tinted. Um, it's. Br- I it actually worked out really well. I think it was shaped for uh, like a like a thin lady that never picked it up (laughs) and so you just put it in the raffle and i was super small when i was that age so it like worked perfect for me because i was pretty lightweight but yeah it was bright it was like pepto-bismol pink Mm -hmm. so do you you want was there a a board that really grabbed you that you were younger that made you really want to nose ride specifically because i mean you're a really good all-round surfer but nose riding is something that you obviously spend a lot of time uh, getting into which not all florida surfers do necessarily I wonder what what nudged you in that direction. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily a board as much as there. Uh, there was a lot of surfers in the area who who rode traditional longboards. Um, uh, Jesse, for one, was already riding kind of heavy single fin surfboards. And then Justin Quintal and um, the guy who actually worked on that one, Weston Merkel, was like an amazing nose rider. He was kind of Joel's protege for a little while before settling back down at Atlantic Beach. So. I just kind of had a lot of people who were nose riding. I was like, oh, that's cool. I guess I'll try that. <laughs> um, so your dad said that your first surfboard was a was sort of a, a hand-me-down from him. Um, but your first new one was a Bennett Thruster. Do you remember that one? Yeah. yeah the, your, your dad said for you to tell us the story of its fate during a surf trip to um, Sebastian Inlet. Oh, man. These are all stories that are so like I can't believe these <laughs> haven't come up before. Me and your dad had a great text back and forth um, over a couple of days about all of this stuff. Let's see. Uh, yeah, my dad took me down to Fort Lauderdale for or no, it was Fort Pierce for uh, a hurricane swell, and we had to, we stayed in some like kind of shitty motel. And um, thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were just chasing for the swell. We we like in between surfs. I think I took a nap and kind of stashed it behind bushes, and it got stolen. Mm-hmm. Ah, that was a heartbreak. Yeah, yeah. You had a contest coming up, I think, didn't you? Yeah, the, uh, there was a contest the next Wave weekend. Wave Masters event. Yeah, yeah, man, you got the good. I got, got it. Good yeah, you info. actually still went on to win that event, and that you were was the... that was the first event I won. Yeah, I, we. My dad went and bought me a surfboard on the way home. We drove through Cocoa Beach and went to. I think we picked it up at. Yeah, I think it was Cocoa Beach Surf Company. Mm-hmm. It was a used Rosenboro on the rack. Sweet. It was a copy of a five five nineteen and a quarter. This is the end of the event. Asher with his trophy. Man, look at those board shorts. Oh, my God. <laughs> those things are great. Yeah. Again, photos are in the show notes, everybody. I feel like at some point, Asher's got to have his own page on the Encyclopedia of Surfing. <laughs> Matt Walshaw, if so. you're listening, we'll, we'll forward all these photos to you. Mm-hmm. Guys, if, if our listeners, if you could see right now, I'm very red. <laughs> I'm very, very red. Um, so 2008, big year for you. What happened? I don't remember 2008. I was ESA, East Coast Junior Longboard Champion. Oh, yeah. That was a good year. Yeah, yeah. So I found a newspaper article when I was literally just Googling Asher King surfing. <laughs> one thing that came up, it was the, uh, the Roso One Design Longboard Contest results. Oh, that was a great event. So second place prize was a vacation to Nosara. And Asher and Justin both entered, and they neither of them won the second place. You got first and third. So that would have been your first time here, but you had to yeah. wait a little longer. Yeah. So. That's, that's so funny. <laughs> that's some good detective work. Thank you. Yeah, it took a little bit of time. There's a, Actually, on that subject of detective work, can you remember what event you won with Lainey Cunningham in 2010? 
Oh, that's a that was a tandem event. It was a tandem event. Yeah, so you never fu- told us that. So funny story. <laughs> the uh, her big sister's down here surfing all the time. Mm-hmm. Sierra Cunningham, and she always laughs about. So the whole family are like amazing surfers. Like her older brother is like of like a world class shortboarder. She's mm-hmm. a really really high level QS uh, competitive surfer. But the um, their sister didn't ever surf. She she was younger. She just never really got into it. And um, so. She, we did it. I did a tandem contest and she was my tandem partner uh-huh. and she was really lightweight. So I could like pick her up and like float her through the air. And, um, yeah, she's the only one in the family that's yeah. won that yeah. particular contest. I desperately tried to the... find photos of it, but there are doesn't appear to be any oh, online or in the newspaper. So. Good thing that that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so Asha, you joined the surf simply team in 2014 and immediately strengthened the coaching program. And with more than four years here, it's hard to imagine a future without your, that was the, best surf ever attitude so i guess you'll have to stay oh man that was a that was thank you <laughs> that was really i really appreciate that you're welcome i'm blushing hard yeah we'll have to put a little facebook album together of uh, asher through the ages yeah your Please first pair of birdwells there's a photo of you oh <laughs> these are just ridiculous they're also one i have one which was your first week in a group photo and you know who's in that photo believe it or not who Justin and Amanda, they have no bookended way. your Surf Simply career. That's crazy. No way. Yeah, yeah. I have a list of all your contest entries and wins if anyone else is interested. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll throw them up on the, uh, yeah. on the show notes. Thank you very much to, um, to Ash's dad, John, for just, just being amazing at getting loads of photos and stories together for me for that little piece. So. Oh, thank you so much for that. All right, ladies and gents. So that is very nearly all we've got time for. But as always, we have our what to what sections. Uh, a few things to keep you entertained over the festive season. Uh, Rue, what have you got for us? I have got, well, I think I mentioned it earlier in the show, but Kelly Slater's three-point wave against Felipe Toledo, where he falls off, body surfs up the face, grabs his board, climbs back on the board and comes out on his feet. Coolest thing ever. I would have given him so many more points. But watching that, you can go on YouTube and watch that whole, I think from memory, it's round three, heat 12 against Felipe Toledo. And it's just, it's just cool watching Kelly out at pipe and big waves and Felipe's great to watch. And there's lots of drama and crazy waves and that huge backdoor closeout that, you know, he has to kind of dive through. Yeah. It's just like, it's competitive. It's entertaining, competitive surfing. It's absolute best. Now you wrote in the show notes, was this the best three point wave ever? Who got the, who else was it that landed, either did a huge air and fell off or pulled into a barrel? I, want to say it was kelly like two years ago and there was that whole thing of like mm-hmm. did he make 4. it 4.14 wasn't it that yeah that ride yeah was it the, at trestles yeah he had the the air at lowers where where he, he fell, fell got midnight. back onto the board and rode out of it so it's the second time kelly's got a low score for falling but still <laughs> riding out of it. i feel like if you fall on the board flat and stand up again that's you should you should be penalized but i feel like if you fall and you're a full arm's length away from your board body surfing and then you grab your board inside the barrel and yeah, stand must up be worth something yeah just because the maneuver hasn't got a, mana- a name doesn't mean it's not a maneuver <laughs> well see i just just to extend this a little bit but you can do a superman air where you take the board away from oh, you. oh i like where you're going and you throw it out at arm's length Stop. and you bring it back in underneath you and you ride out of it and that's a completed Ooh. maneuver now why should that be okay because you're off the wave face and to f- to end up on your belly on the board and get back to your feet 
not be okay because you're on the wave face. Because Superman flying through the air is cool, but Superman <laughs> flying across the ground <laughs> is cool. <laughs> oh, just one more point on that. Uh, Michelle Berez at Chopu two years ago, he, he said it was on purpose, but it didn't look like it to me. His back foot fell off in the oh, barrel. Yeah. And he yeah. dragged his back foot mm-hmm. and he got a nine. Yeah. But Kelly dragged his whole body yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he got a three. <laughs> What's going on? There we go. Uh, Will, what have you got for us? Uh, it is a Surfer Magazine video on YouTube of Torrin Martin talking about another of his twin fin quivers. Uh, he's got a load of the Simon Jones Morning of the Earth boards and they're very interesting and just a load of him absolutely charging double overhead waves on a twin fin. Very cool. And Morning of the Earth surfboards, if you wouldn't mind getting back to me about the order I put in. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't really heard in a while. Uh, Ash, what have you got for us? My what to watch is the highlights of the last duct tape invitational in uh, China. Um, In that whole longboard section, we talked about a whole bunch of different designs. And of all these surfers, there is like an equal distribution of these designs between them. So you got a good example of how different strokes for different folks. It's all functional. It's just how you approach it. Very cool. Um, and I do not have anything for you to watch, listeners. But I do have something for you to read and something for you to listen to. So to read, Nick Carroll uh, has always been one of the really great writers within surfing. He's written a really nice long-form article about his thoughts on the Wave Ranch and his experience at the Wave Ranch and, and wave pools in general. It's a, a really interesting read. So I'll give you a link to that. It was a piece that was meant for the Surfers Journal, but they ended up not running it. So it's that sort of length and uh, and, and, and intensity, but uh, it's on Beach Grip. But to listen to the opening and closing of, uh, of the Surf Simply podcast, the voice that you hear and are about to hear in a minute is my sister's voice. And she has just started a new podcast, which is the BBC Earth podcast. Uh, she's been given access to an awful lot of cool people at the BBC Wildlife Department. And the, the, the podcast that she's putting together is storytelling in and around the natural world. And uh, it's pretty freaking cool. Uh, so you should, if, you, if you like podcasts, if you like storytelling, you like wildlife and, and the natural world, it's definitely worth a listen. Now that you and your sister are both such renowned podcast hosts, do you ever get podcast competitive around Christmas dinner? Uh, I, I'm not going to play <laughs> that game. But the, the last time my sister did a podcast, she went to the top of the charts in and on the uk thing on their second show <laughs> uh, i haven't checked recently but i think she's in the top 10 podcasts in the world at the moment so it's amazing. I'm, just not, I'm just not going to even try and so compete should, with that should we rephrase ash's question now that your sister is a renowned <laughs> yes <laughs> it's amazing she's built a whole career off just doing the voiceover on the intro of the surf simply podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yes no uh you should definitely check that out can I throw another what to watch in there? Yeah, go for it. Now, I don't usually put these in, but Jose Cebajo edits our videos here. Um, he makes a video every week about everything that's happened at Surf Simply. And um, the one that he made for November the 24th to December 1st, it wasn't like hugely different to the, the ones that we make 
you know, week in, week out. I think they're all pretty special. They're all really made for the people that were here, but I think that they're, they're cool viewing if you're ever planning on coming to Surf Symphony. But the one that he made for November 24th to December 1st, it was just that some of the interviews were really special and there was some really nice shots of our new resort in there. And I just thought it was a really beautiful movie. It gave me a little lump in my throat. So if you don't jump in and watch the weekly Surf Symphony movies very often, guys, uh, I think November 24th to December 1st is kind of a nice one to just jump in and spend a few minutes watching. It's pretty special. There we go. All right, ladies and gents, uh, have a lovely time over the holiday season and we will be back soon. Happy Christmas. Bye. Bye-bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Surf Simply.